This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. From Christianity Today, I'm Sandra McCracken, and this is The Slow Work. We are all creatives at heart, no matter what career or calling we find ourselves in. Inspiration can happen in a second, but the work of creativity only happens when we are patient enough to stay with it. It takes grit to see it through. I love hearing what it looks like for musicians, poets, painters, writers, and advocates. So I've been having conversations with them, and I want to invite you to listen in. As you do, I hope that your faith story gets tangled up in your work story and that your creative mind will be renewed by hope and possibility. My guest today is Colleen Ramser, who is a counselor and therapist. She specializes in work with ministry leaders, and if you all are part of a faith community, you know that there's such a great need for care and healing in this area. I love the work that she's doing and the way she talks about her work. The intersection between theology and therapy, I think, is an important one. So glad to have her on the show today. It is so good to make the connection through the rise and fall of Mars Hill and just a touch point there, seeing and hearing about your work with trauma and recovery and therapy. Um, you know, I think people use that word a lot in different contexts sure. now. Would you have a particular way you would invite people to ask some questions about it? Yeah. What is trauma? You know, I think a lot of people are throwing it around like, well, that's trauma. Mm -hmm. This is trauma mm -hmm. and that's trauma. You know, there's big traumas in our life where we have a big event and we experience some symptoms afterwards that are correlating with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And then there's cumulative where we have all these little traumas, potentially like in our family of origin, you know, whether it's neglect or abuse or emotional, psychological, whatever it is. And it's just sort of a constant slow drip throughout one's life that when they show up in my office, I kind of see sort of this, I, I just, there's been all these little things that's happened in my life and it becomes very complex to tease out. Mm. But one thing that I refer to is kind of my own definition <laughs> where I talk about it's one image bearer takes advantage of another one and uses their own little P power and agency or dominion to dismiss or control or manipulate, exploit another person, another human being. Of course, there's natural disasters as well, but I mostly work with people who've been through relational trauma and you see it as a result. There's a loss of personhood, loss of identity. They really go through a process of regaining that sense of agency again. Mm -hmm. But then I also educate people on not everybody who goes through something comes out experiencing the symptoms of trauma, of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. There's tons of research on post-traumatic growth and how people will go through something awful and come out very resilient more compassionate, mindful people that there's so much growth in their life that you wouldn't have anticipated based on what they went through. And so I often will say trauma is kind of in the eyes of the person 
in a lot of ways. What's traumatic for one person might not be traumatic for someone else. Mm -hmm. That is really fascinating. And I think of examples of that where you see we each have unique points of vulnerability and stress. And so if trauma is kind of like an overload Mm -hmm. of an experience, some of us can pull more weight in different areas, right? So if depending on what the what the crisis is or what the trauma is. Or what our capacity yeah. is, of course, you know, yeah. there's... Can we strengthen yeah. our capacity for resilience? Like, can we... Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and a lot of the work that I do with clients, you can see it happening. Their capacity for things, you know, through this healing journey and this process is becoming more and more. When they went through the traumatic event or the cumulative complex traumas that they went through, mm-hmm. their capacity was just dwindled down. Mm-hmm so much. And so that's where you see a lot of people who have triggers that maybe something very small in their day is so, so big and it's so hard and complex to kind of tease out and to have the capacity for. But when, you know, you've lost all of your sense of self and you bring a lot of that back, there's less of that feeling of everything is so permeable. You know, when we go through trauma, our window of tolerance gets messed with. And so we either completely shut down or we become highly agitated and anxious. So there's kind of these two spaces. And when someone gets out of that window of tolerance, their capacity goes down. But maybe not so much I would talk about this at first with someone who's been through spiritual abuse, but something I would with someone who comes in and they've still got their faith intact is how we kind of take on and receive Christ's capacity and his embodiment within ourselves so that our window of tolerance grows. And it's sort of borrowed from (laughs) Christ himself, where I might go through my day and and experience a trigger. But if I'm really allowing my own embodiment to take on Christ and to receive that into myself, then there's this increased confidence and capacity that I notice within my body that I can then keep going, you know, and I can find my identity and confidence in him, even when it looks bleak and it looks pretty bad. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) What does it take to be in the process of healing? Like, do people come in because they have a a felt need often and that you get to the point where you're like, I don't want to live like this. I want to address these things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes I get some, you know, who are 20 something and I'm like, Praise Jesus that they are starting this journey so yeah. early, um, yeah. you know, and they have, they have just a, a, an awareness that there's something not quite right. Mm-hmm. But often I would say I get a lot of people who are just, they are just at their wits end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, I've been trying all these things and there's just, none of them are working. So a lot of times I'll see people in their 30s, you know, entering into their 40s where it's just your story kind of hits you. You, you just come face to face with the reality of the things you've lived. Yeah. But then there's also people who they've gone through something recently mm-hmm. and it's traumatic and they come in and they're like, I need to take care of this one incident. And then they realize there's sort of this trail behind them mm-hmm. <laughs> that we begin to explore and they're sort of becoming aware of some of the ways that lots of things have affected their life. It's just varies, but I would say a lot of people come in, I'm anxious, I'm depressed. I've had these events happen in my life, but I'm not sure quite what to do next. 
There have been a lot of people talking about deconstruction. Should we have a season where we pull things apart and look at them for what they are before we start to rebuild something new? I'd believe so. Have you ever read a novel? I'm not big on novels, but have you read a novel? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And so when you you read a novel, you kind of have a felt sense of the book. So someone asks you, hey, how was that Harry Potter book? How was that Lord of the Rings book? Whatever it was. And you can, you can kind of, you know, have a beginning, middle and an end. Mm -hmm. And trauma, the way it works is it's sort of like someone rips out all the pages of this novel and asks you then to read it and to give an account of it on a daily basis. There's a process of, of deconstruction and the way that looks in this novel analogy is you're gathering these pages Mm -hmm. and you're beginning to put them in order Hmm in this book to then read it from start to finish and to have a felt sense of what did I live? What did I go through? They don't leave stones unturned. They acknowledge all of these parts of themselves, all of these pages to then move forward. I I think that this is where churches and pastors and different people get very nervous because someone starts saying bad things about God, their faith, they don't believe in God anymore. They don't know what to do with that. They're like, oh gosh, like I need to revive this. Someone needs some CPR like ASAP. But I think if you can sit with it and be patient with it and allow it to unravel and validate it, you know, I call it sort of this moral outrage that has to happen. Mm -hmm. It's a part of the work. And so that rebuilding process is just so much sweeter, but we can rebuild with whatever we want to put in there. Toward the later stages of healing, we do have to feed our faith in certain ways if we don't want to go astray. We don't want to completely lose that. Some people, they're just not in that space, and they don't, and they don't want to have anything to do with God. And it's, it's of course, heartbreaking, um, but I get it. I understand. I learned of this painting, Mary on Tire of Knots, while I was serving at an Anglican church from a friend and pastor, and we were talking about it during Advent, specifically just this image of Mary and the way that in so many ways we kind of get tangled in our stories. And there is something kind of twisted or not what we originally thought about the story. And yet we all have this in common. Even if your life has been orderly so far, there are going to be surprises twists and turns in the narrative that you may not have expected. Sometimes we even cause them. So I love this Baroque painting that just really puts a visual to that to help me to think and to remember that this is in process, that God is at work in this, that he is intervening in these ways to continue the story, to maybe even align the story. Um, But for right now, we're kind of holding this in our hands and praying and offering it up to him to see what might be. The more times you watch people go through the process of taking things apart and then they're never put back together, there's a grief in Mm -hmm. that that I think is okay to acknowledge, hey, this is sad and scary for me to watch with you, right? Let alone really scary when it's your own tangled story and you're trying to figure that out. It made me think about, I don't know if you've ever seen the a famous painting like in the Catholic tradition called Mary Untire of Knots. And she's holding oh, yeah. this long rope of knots. Mm. And so the, there's a prayer that kind of goes along with it in the Catholic tradition. The image stayed with me in the sense that we do get ourselves in these complicated situations. Mm-hmm. The phrase cumulative trauma 
in a sense, if you've lived longer than 10 years, maybe. I know, right? <laughs> like there will be knots that need to be untied and asking and praying for divine wisdom to untie these knots. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Thinking about the Old Testament and the stories of God's people all through the ages, they are not tidy stories. They are imperfect stories that continue to show God is the one who comes in to rescue and deliver and redeem and make beautiful. And so in that, that's how I relate to what Colleen's sharing so personally is that there's an affirmation to just be in it and to recognize that there is a need to be influenced and delivered by grace, and we don't exactly know how that's all going to spin out right now. Yesterday, I was taking a walk with a friend in the woods, and we saw in the light that was coming in in the morning, there were these huge spider webs that catch the light. And then there was one that was like, it looked like a cobweb because it was it was very deep. It wasn't just a flat surface, but had this huge thing behind it. And I was like, that feels like my inner life right now. Like, not just like, can I just have a clean slate cobweb that makes sense mathematically? Mine is more yeah. like this messy thing in the corner that has so many angles that I can't even make yeah. sense of it. Yeah. So even if it's not trauma, and I think that word needs to have a place of honor because abuse needs to be recognized as such, yeah. right? But I yeah. do think that we can get ourselves into these situations that asking the question of how do we lay this all out, you know, put it all out before God and then ask for him to bring order out of chaos. It's yeah. like a spiritual work that we're a part of. Talking about the slow work, <laughs> I've sat with a lot of clients that they come in and they just need to acclimate to being in another person's presence that calls themselves a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've sat with people sometimes for several months where there's just silence mm. in my session. Wow. Some will write out what they want to say because they just can't get it out. They can't articulate it. And they'll go from processing in colors to then processing in images and then words. Wow. And so this patience, I think, is so needed. I remember a time in my own life when I just needed someone just to say they were there. Yeah. Took me two years to speak in a community group. It was just a slow, slow process of gathering and deconstructing and getting to a space that I felt a stronger sense of myself mm-hmm. before the Lord. And if our truest self is found in Him and that gets messed with, right. <laughs> To me, it's almost like a deeper wounding right? because who we are is everywhere in Him, in our church, and our prayer, and our journaling, and all these different ways all gets associated then with mm-hmm. the trauma or the abuse. 
Do you think that there's probably more spiritual abuse happening than we recognize or name? That's a good question. Hmm. I think a lot of unintentional. Right. A lot of unintentional, you know, pastors will maybe not recognize their little pea power, Mm -hmm. you know, and dominion with another believer. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the biggest components is not recognizing another image bearer's autonomy, their agency, and sort of having this overconfidence that I've been led by the Lord and I'm going to tell you what to do in your life versus a very trauma-informed way of approaching someone is to incorporate a lot of choice and a lot of collaboration with the Holy Spirit and inviting the Holy Spirit into this process. And so I think there's a lot of times pastors try to be the Holy Spirit or leaders try to be the Holy Spirit and they direct where I think we could really grow in invitation and, you know, well-meaning people will then unintentionally harm another person. Yeah. You mentioned the word silence or the the prerequisite of silence is really just being present in it. Yeah. If we're listening, um, we're less likely to speak on God's behalf. So that Mm -hmm. makes a healthier environment to have spiritual formation if we're doing more listening than speaking. (laughs) Yeah. You know, early on being in the church and ministry and caring for others, I declared a lot more. Mm Than I do now. (laughs) I'm a lot more hesitant to tell someone what to do or how to do it just by my own growing and learning and and realizing that there's such complexity to the soul. There's so much complexity to someone's journey and that I don't have all the answers Mm -hmm. and there is a mystery to parts of it. And I think when people kind of start to try and have all the answers, especially with spiritual abuse, It just comes off a little cliche, but it also still fosters the lack of agency for them. Whereas if you were to create grounding for them to begin to connect to their body and rebuild in those ways, Mm -hmm. like what is the spirit saying to my soul right now? What am I sensing? Then it's, it's a much more powerful process than if I keep creating sort of this dependency on a leader Mm -hmm. or a person in my life You know, not to say that discipleship is not important. That, of course, is. And there is a dynamic to that. But even then, we overuse the confidence piece and the directives. Yeah. You know, if you're well-meaning, but you want to help somebody come to see something a certain way and you care about them, but you bring them these declarations of like, here's what would be good for you. And they haven't really drawn that out. They don't have agency. They Mm -hmm. don't have... Not only is it probably not as effective, right? <laughs> but it's also, it's like I'm way out of my lane at that point when I'm trying mm-hmm. to do that, even if it's because I care about the person. Do you think that this sort of healing work is a work we all do with one another in community? Or is it, is there a level that it really needs to be done by someone trained and skilled in some of these? Therapies? I think both. Yeah. I really think both. Yeah. You know, because I'll tell pastors and churches, like, I need you too. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I don't need you to press eject. I definitely think that God has created the church to have a role and to provide resources and to provide presence. Um, And that's why a lot of times I'll sit with pastors and train ministry leaders on 
trauma and just trying to help them to wrap their head around it a little bit more. So they're less scared of it, Yeah, that they don't feel so much like they're going to ruin someone, (laughs) but to have a role in this whole healing journey in this process. Last year we had Dr. Kurt Thompson on the show and we were talking so much about confessional communities and the research shows how much we need one another to journey through these places of trauma and back into more health and more connectivity with one another and more flourishing in our work. I would say that is very much my story is that none of that happens in a vacuum. It doesn't just happen in an armchair. And the invitation is to come back to what it is to know and be known by others and that we can speak into each other's lives in really meaningful ways. If I think about times in my own story when I needed more support or it really did take a whole community of people around me doing different parts of that because it wasn't, it wasn't really meant to be carried by one individual or one professional. Mm -hmm. And the more comfortable we are with those practices of like just being with and sitting with those conversations around doubt and deconstruction. Mm -hmm. If healing is going to happen, it's not going to happen one hour a week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like you said, it's very patient work. Uh, You know, in my own healing journey, because, you know, and I'm still on it, we're all still on our journeys. I had to diversify it, my, my needs, because they were just so deep Mm -hmm. and so much. And so I would have multiple people in my life, some more deep, some not as deep, but just to have that felt sense of belonging and not being alone. One of the biggest predictors of post-traumatic stress disorder is a sense of aloneness, whether it's Mm -hmm. real or imagined perception of aloneness. And so obviously the antidote to that is community and people. One thing I've encouraged uh, a lot of my clients is, you know, find your people and Sometimes that one hour that you come in to see me may be your deepest part that you're revealing where you don't feel as safe with other people. But having that belonging, having those resources, that community is so part of the embodied feeling of that connection and that you're you're tethered in somewhere mm-hmm. versus that chaos, you know, like you're falling off of a cliff feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. And 
I think Jesus often relates to us in metaphors, most of which we don't understand and people didn't understand what he was talking about (laughs) in these parables. But yet they still, they continue to kind of open up over time, you know? Yeah. And I would imagine you have a lot of those in your tool belt that you pull out. Are there some that you go back to often in your work? You know, one that I like, one in particular that led me to Christ when I was 16 was the story of Mary Magdalene. Mm And I just was completely overwhelmed emotionally by how much she went through and experienced and suffered and the amount of shame she must have carried Mm. as she walked the streets, you know, and to be met with Christ. You know, I just was overwhelmed by how this man received this woman with so much shame and a story of so much that it went on in her life, but he received her. There was an offering that she did of worship with what she had. She didn't have much, you know, and I I think trauma survivors, a lot of times they feel that way, that they don't have much. Mm -hmm. Christ took it and received it anyways and loved that she did this. Like, have you seen The Chosen? Every time Mary Magdalene, there's a scene with Jesus, yes. I'm like, I fall, I completely fall apart all yeah. over again, like I was 16. Yeah. Um, um, so that's one. But I've also used the story of the bleeding woman. You know, she goes through her community again, a lot of shame, a lot of people, I'm sure, kind of dismissing her, not wanting to be near her. Mm-hmm. And she gets to Jesus, and I just love this. She touches him. I think there's a lot of restoration that has to happen, even with touch, yeah. with trauma survivors. Yeah. You know, they they really benefit from things like trauma touch therapy or massage or somatic therapy with touch that they can sort of experience that good, safe touch. And so when she goes to Jesus and touches him, he says, my power has left me. And power is such a big word within trauma because there's Mm. this feeling of powerlessness and for her to experience the power of Christ, you know, imparted to her uh, to then be healed. She had been bleeding for 12 years. There is a slowness implied in those few words that we get in the account, you know, that in some ways is... um, There was an urgency in that moment, but there was a long time leading up to it. I think that's where it's not so linear and people get a little confused about the process. There's little, little nuggets along the way and they're very small. I don't drown them with scripture. I don't drown (laughs) them with prayer. I learned my lesson early on in my career (laughs) when I prayed a psalm with someone who she had been raped by a pastor and it was just she's completely disassociating, completely disconnected and shut down. You're really going through an emotional flashback. And so I've, I've learned that I can't, I can't drown them with these things early on. And I just have to offer Mm -hmm. the little crumb of daily bread. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that daily bread crumb that they may get is I get it. I get it. I completely understand why you want nothing to do with God. And then the reason why I refer to that as a crumb is because I think as clinicians and people who are in this process for people, I'm trying to be Christ for this person and receive her or him, whoever it is. And so if their daily bread is just to be received at where they are, Mm -hmm. you know, Genesis one, where are you? 
then that is part of it. And as time goes on, they begin to understand that I'm, gosh, you know, I think that I have to stay just as much on top of my own work. I have to be a trustworthy person, a trustworthy, quote, Christian. And so when they begin to trust that I'm not going to harm them, I'm not going to make them be where they're not, Mm. then there's a little bit more openness to explore where is God in my day today? You know, like Mm -hmm. it's just, it's real little, it's very minimal doses that they start to be receptive to. I call it kind of a micro attuning. I I feel like is a big part of my work, (laughs) micro attuning to the spirit, micro attuning to their body, to their mind, to my own self in the room and being able to continue to offer what is that little crumb that they need right now? Mm. Is Mm. there a correlation with imagination in the work? Sometimes people are in a process where they're not ready for that. They're not ready for the future. Right. They're not ready for the that's future talk. And, and, um, and that's okay. Sometimes for some people, it takes years. There's a fear of it that sometimes causes people to go back and they don't want to enter into that space yeah. of newness, uh, if that makes sense. Experiencing difficult things that press on some of the same places of stress or like she talks about small T trauma. In those places in my own life, sometimes I feel like, man, this feels really bad. I don't think this is how it's supposed to feel. But as I look back in the rearview mirror, I start to realize that God is actually doing something in those difficult places to continue to bring me to depend on him more deeply, to see that he is the one that is bringing healing by not leaving me alone in some of those areas that feel like chaos. And yet in that, he is strengthening me. He has given me confidence to know that there is a way forward and that we don't have to do the same things expecting a different result, but that by grace, we are being made new. Recently, we moved into a new house and as excited as we are about being in the new house, there is a sense of disorientation because you don't know where things are and we can't find the mixing bowls and I don't know what these light switches do and, you know, all the stuff (laughs) that you're trying to figure out that no one tells you. And even though you want to be in the new house, there is a sense of disorientation around it. Yeah. So I'm sure you've heard this word integration before. Mm Maybe the analogy with your house is, you know, this integrative process would require you to create memory in your home and to create history where there's this newness and it can be good. That can be good in the newness. There's so much that can be good moving from a victim to a survivor Mm -hmm. or someone who's thriving in life and flourishing. But it does require some responsibility. On in our bodies of saying, I'm going to participate or something. You know, yeah, I'm going to yeah. participate in this home and and create memories in this home so that I have history, a novel, a felt sense of being a part of mm-hmm. this new space. That yeah, that's so good. Someone gave me a Henry Nowen book that has these little oh, excerpts, it. you know, of his journal yes. at some point, and he has one page that talks about leaving the old country and entering the new one. And he describes you have one foot in the new country, but it's not your home yet. And you're kind of unfamiliar. And I love what you're saying about memory, like bringing memory into the new home, which is not the same as ritual. It's embodiment. So I guess in a way we're kind of living in that in between already and not Mm -hmm. yet 
more often than not, people just sort of fall into it. Mm-hmm. Their language and their articulation and their processing in sessions is movement toward that. You know, a lot of that debris has been cleared out in their body. They've deconstructed some things and there's a renewed sense of life or those dry bones yeah. that are moving. And and they begin to talk about things like, I want to go do this or I'm really passionate about that. I want to advocate over here, you know, or, or I feel less yeah. depressed and I just feel a sense of hopefulness about my life and the future and what's ahead and what God's going to do. Mm. Yeah, it's. There is some participation though. Yeah. I appreciate the hearing you say how slowly it happens, how how gradually this takes place. And in a way, there's a lot of future built into that because patience is implying that you know this is going somewhere good. Mm, You know that mm -hmm. you would that you'd be able to slow down and take the time because you're not trying to force something that feels like you're afraid of it not, you know, not taking, like healing is going to happen and this is the way. And then we inch our way forward, trying to find it, you know, trying to find our way to it. Any kind of suffering, (laughs) anything that's painful, we either want to rush our way through it and white knuckle it and be done with it. You know, let's just heal from it now and and get it all taken care of. Um, Or you have someone who completely just wants to avoid it, which is definitely part of the work that I do with people is avoidance, you know, like how to not avoid anymore. um, Some of these painful experiences, there's a lot of kind of back and forth with that where people want to force themselves forward or they want to press eject altogether. (laughs) And it's helping them again, stay in that window of tolerance and that distress, Mm. not taking them too far out of it. Teaching them to be patient with themselves as I'm being patient with them. I'll get people saying like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, there is no expectations or judgment in this room. Mm. You know, there's no reason for you to apologize for being silent. It makes sense. Of course you're silent. (laughs) Yeah, there's such a dignity to that, just being able to be Mm -hmm. in it. I so relate to both, even though my songs and my work tends to be coming out of that patient space. I think that's what has emerged in my songwriting. My real life is so polarized by those things. It's like, I'm either trying to like rush forward or like make this go away. And I just wanted to, you know, acknowledge that because it is just part of our wanting to get out of that feeling of pain. If we keep avoiding the pain, we have to sit with it. We have to be able to acknowledge it. And yet at the same time, I teach clients, you don't have to stay there. Right. And it doesn't have to overcome you. It doesn't have to be your whole day. (laughs) But instead, I need to just go take a hike or a walk, or go enjoy a good meal and embrace that joyful moment Mm -hmm. versus always being in the negative for the pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. That getting back to the embodied part, you know, you keep having to get back just to the physical reality of who we are and taking a walk or eating an apple or doing something right in the middle of it. So grateful to have the time with you and just to be able to kind of look at this from so many different angles and just for people that may be hearing this and are just like, I don't know, there may be some terms around the the therapy that we are saying for the first time and you have a way of kind of bringing us into it that makes it just make sense. So I appreciate your work, but we're so grateful. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
In my conversation with Colleen, I think about ways in my own story where I'm going to use the cliche example, but if you get burned by a hot stove, one option in that situation is that you sell the stove, throw it out, you figure out how to only eat refrigerated foods for the rest of your life, and you decide, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to cook on the stove anymore. Or if you move forward in your life and realize, okay, I can do this, I have to learn new things around what it is to engage with a hot stove. There is something that is inviting us into this work of saying, are we going to just shut down and say, hey, I'm not going to go back to that place of pain ever again, and I'm going to make myself a vow never to do that? Or are we going to open ourselves to the vulnerability of saying, I will cook again on a hot stove, maybe even a gas stove instead of an electric stove, which is much more dynamic. But if you get into that and you go down that road, it takes courage, and I think it's incredibly rewarding because, honestly, the food's going to taste way better at the end of the day. The Slow Work is a production of Christianity Today. Executive produced by Mike Cosper. Produced by Luke Bronner and Azure Phelps. Additional recording by Evan Redwine. Edited and mixed by Dan Phelps. Original music by Tyler Chester. Graphic design by Chris Bennett. And I'm your host, Sandra McCracken. Thanks again for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.